Thank you, Jim, for your prayer for us and for me. I really do appreciate that. I think about, since today, Mom's the Word, I think about my mother and grandmother and even my great-grandmother. I can remember sitting in her lap when she was, uh, I guess, in her 90s, and I was just a little kid. I mean, like, probably, seriously, three, three years old or so. I can remember sitting in her lap. And she had this deep um, Russian accent. They came, she came uh, as, a, as a newlywed teenager from Ukraine back when it was part of the Soviet Union before the revolution in uh, 1917, or actually they came over around 1915. But anyway, she had this deep, uh, deep uh, Russian accent. And anyway, I, I have a, a tape of her talking to me and it's sort of crazy. I can sound just like her. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> Hello, little Vane. Just want to say, or no, just want to tell goodbye, because I don't know much more. <laughs> and I remember she would pray. Um, she says, when you, grow, uh, when you grow up to be a man and have a, your own family, and then she'd talk about, you know, God. And I never really got to talk with her about God, obviously, because I was still just, you know, three or four years old before when she died. But after I really began walking with Christ, which was, wasn't until uh, I was in college, I came to Christ as a kid, about seven years old. But, uh, you know, it was one of those churches that did a great job of getting you saved, but didn't really do much with you after that. And so as a result, I didn't grow much after that until I got to college in a church that really deepened me in the scriptures. And once I became passionate about, you know, walking with God, then you you'd naturally begin to look around at your family and ask, well, I wonder if they're passionate about God, because I haven't heard much about it, about the Lord from various people. And a couple of those people were my mother and my grandmother. So I decided I'm going to ask them about their walk with God. And I'll never forget, I came up to... Uh, my mother, and well, I'll tell my grandmother first, came to my grandmother, we were driving in her pickup truck, and I just turned over and I said, Grandmother, if you were to die today and were to stand before God, and he, and he would say, tell me, Doris, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And she said, well, ooh. She just thought for a second. She said, I would say, well, because, dummy. And I, I, I just thought, oh, that's really not the right answer. <laughs> and then she went on. She said, I would say it's because I have placed my faith in your son, Jesus, who died for my sins. And I thought, oh, thank goodness she said that. And uh, then my mom, I'll never forget, it. there was another lady with my mom at the time, and I asked both of them at the same time. I was really interested in my mom's answer, but I asked both of them because they didn't want my mom to feel like I was picking on her. And uh, the other lady said an answer, and it was not ideal. And so I thought, okay, well, this is setting mom up. Like, she's not going to be fed the right answer. If it's going to come, it's going to come because she knows the right answer. And she thought, she said, I would say, I would answer him, there's nothing I could do, but it's because of Christ. Ah, oh, and I'm going to start crying. <laughs> but anyway, shortly after that, my mom went to be with the Lord, and it's just such a blessing to know, not only that they are in glory, 
but that I had the privilege of talking with them about that before they went. Not that my question made a difference, but it made a difference for me that I was able to know. I want to share with you the last, second to last lesson from our time in Joseph in Genesis chapter 48. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 49. And so feel free to turn there. And while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you my favorite Dr. Toussaint joke. I first heard this joke when I was in seminary in a class Dr. Toussaint taught. And uh, he would not begin the class with a joke. He would stop the class when, it was, when people were clearly drifting off. And he'd, start, he'd tell this random joke that had nothing to do with, uh, you know, I think it was like we were in Greek or something. And he, was, he told this random joke. But it was a great joke. And it fits with our lesson. So it's not a random joke for us. But and my favorite Dr. Toussaint joke is the one about the British fighter pilot that crash-landed in Nazi Germany. Do you remember this joke? It's interesting because I've told it to you before. <laughs> Which means you don't remember anything I've said either. Well, it's just fine. <clears throat> so, British fighter pilot crash-lands in Nazi Germany during World War II. He's there about a month, and the commander, the German commander, comes in and tells the British fighter pilot, he says, the right arm has gangrene, must come off. And the fighter pilot says, well, he says, okay, he says, but I want you to bury my arm in Britain because I love my country. The commander says, hmm, well, we must ask the Fuhrer. So he goes away, asks the Fuhrer, comes back and says, the Fuhrer say, yeah. So cuts his arm off, sends it to Britain, buries it in Britain. Another month goes by. The commander comes in and says, the left arm has gangrene, must come off. The fighter pilot says, well, all right, well, you can cut my other arm off as long as you'll bury it with my other arm in Britain because I love my country. The commander says, hmm, we must ask the Fuhrer. Goes away, comes back. The Fuhrer say, yeah. So, cuts his other arm off, sends it to Britain, buries it in Britain. Another month goes by. Commander comes in and says, both legs, gangrene, must come off. The fighter pilot's like, good, grief. He says, well, okay, but, you know, if you want you to bury it with my arm, we must ask the Fuhrer. He's gone a long time this time. Comes back and says, the Fuhrer say nine. The fighter pilot says, nine? Why not? The commander says, we think you are trying to escape. <laughs> <laughs> And how that relates, I'll connect it later, because <laughs> I know it's not clear now. But Genesis 49, we are in the end or the tail end here of Joseph's story. And Genesis 49 is Jacob on his deathbed. And the father of Joseph is going to give a blessing, as it were, or a prediction, really, about each of his 12 sons and the 12 tribes of Israel, or the 12 tribes of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the future. And so let's get right into it. Genesis 49, we'll start right in verse 1. Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to, your, to Israel, your father. Now glance down, if you would, at verse 28. 
Look at verse 28. It gives us a bit of a context for the rest of the chapter. Verse 28 says, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to him when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. So, now turn back and look at verse 3. So as we walk through these blessings of each of these sons, the chapter tells us that it is a blessing that is appropriate to each son. So it's not just this generic blessing, but it's a blessing that particularly relates to that son. There are five sons, actually, that are given more space out of the 12. And so I'll tell you, we're not going to focus on all 12 of them because seven of them are just sort of sidebar comments. It's not that they're irrelevant. It's that there isn't a lot there. It gives us some historical insight, kind of like Dan, for example. I just will give you a hint on it. Look at Dan in verse 16. It says, Dan shall judge his people, one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path. Dan's tribe would be in the path on, along the international highway there. And so it talks about Dan being in the way. And it's it talks about a um, the potential that Dan had to influence the nations that came through Israel. But of course, Dan left that area and went up north to the area that we typically call Dan. Uh, so there is a connection there to everything that Jacob is saying to these other seven sons like Dan. But we're not going to focus on them. We're going to focus on the ones that have the most content and the ones that have the most connection for us in a, uh, in a principle of application. And Reuben, verse 3, is one of those. So let's look at Reuben, beginning here in verse 3. Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. It's almost like he turned aside and said that last part. He went up to my couch. What's he talking about? Well, you may remember back, if you've read through Genesis lately, you may remember back in chapter 35, Reuben tried to seize the right of the firstborn. As the firstborn, he had... We read in verse 3, preeminence and dignity, preeminent and power. The firstborn was the one who would have preeminence, the one who would have prominence, the one who would essentially take over after dad was gone. And Reuben, assuming that role sooner than he should have, went and, we, we were, if we were to turn back to 35, we would see that Reuben tried to seize the right of the firstborn by prematurely having relations with Jacob's wife, Bilhah. And this is uh, Reuben's stepmother. Now, there's all kinds of things wrong with that, obviously from our perspective, but in that culture, the, uh, the wives came along with the, at least in the culture, not in the, in the biblical preference. The wives came along with the privilege of being the firstborn. I know it's weird, and it's kind of gross from our perspective, but this is, this is the way it was in that culture. Think about when uh, Absalom took over or tried to take over the coup from David. What did Absalom do that, that, was, that was odious to David? He took David's wives and lay with them in a tent in front of all Israel. 
And this is the same idea. It's like I'm now in power. I am taking control, and this is one way I'm demonstrating it. Reuben did this, and as a result, he lost the privilege of being firstborn. Verse 4 says, Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed and defiled it. He went up to my couch. We see similar things now with the next two, Simeon and Levi. Look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." So Simeon and Levi, they're called brothers, not because they had the same mother, but because they acted in the same manner. Vengeance, violence. Again, we won't turn there, but if we were to turn back to chapter 34, only a chapter ahead of what Reuben did, back in 34 you remember that Simeon and Levi avenged the rape of their sister Dinah by massacring all the men of Shechem, not just the ones who were guilty, but every man. And we're even told here that they lamed oxen in the deal. And Jacob says, you went too far. You went too far. And as a result, um, the blessing or the preeminence of the firstborn is not going to come to Simeon and Levi either. In fact, we're told at the end of verse 7, he says, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. If uh, you remember when... Joshua took Israel, the 12 tribes, into the land. These two particular tribes, uh, the tribe of Levi, didn't have any land. They weren't given any land, or at least they weren't given an allotment of land. They were instead scattered. The Levites were scattered, just like is said here. They were scattered all over. In fact, the 48 Levitical cities were all over the land, and the Levites lived in those cities. They didn't have, like a tribe of Levi had a land, had a portion of land. And uh, Simeon, on the other hand, Simeon's tribe, or his spot, was actually inside Judah. If you were to look at the, the disbursement of the tribes all throughout, if you have a map that shows that, you'll see that Simeon's plot was inside Judah. And eventually Judah just basically swallowed up all of, all of uh, Simeon's spot as well. So, uh, the prediction came true in history. The prediction came true. Here's an interesting principle that we can get from these first three brothers, and uh, it's sort of a sobering principle, and it's this. Tomorrow's privilege can never substitute for today's obedience. Tomorrow's privilege can never substitute for today's obedience. Our privileges and our abilities can tempt us to sort of see them as a guarantee of our success. You know, you're born into a rich family, you think, I'm set. I'm set. Don't need to do a thing. I've got success ready and waiting for me. Think about these other opportunities that actually become handicaps if we don't match privilege with character. Think about For example, a gifted artist like a musician, a local musician, who can't get work because his arrogance keeps him unemployed. 
or a beautiful woman with an attitude that makes her unattractive. Or the child, for example, of a famous person who rides on their parents' success. Without character, privilege is a waste of time. So tomorrow's privilege can never substitute for today's obedience. We can lose privileges that are are waiting for us if we don't match that privilege with obedience to God. We see that in these first three brothers. They, uh, they didn't wait. They didn't obey instead. And, and as a result, they lost the privilege. Now, we've all blown it. We have all at some point been like Reuben and Simeon and Levi. We've all gone too far, whether it's the exact things that they did or not. We've all blown it. But this isn't talking about uh, just our past. This is talking about the future. This is, in a sense, the past that will be. If you think about it, in a sense, uh, tomorrow is what? Yesterday's today? I'm not sure how that works. But the, the idea is that you can't change yesterday, but you can change tomorrow's yesterday with obedience today. We all think about, oh, I wish I could go back and change the past. We can't change the past. But you can change the past that will be by being obedient to God today. And in each of these instances with these brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, every one of them in the moment thought, you know what, doesn't matter. This matters most right now. Ah, can we relate to that? We can really relate to that struggle. That for whatever reason, maybe God's not working fast enough in your life or whatever, there's a shortcut waiting, and the shortcut offered, and we've all taken it. We've all bitten the bait and found the hook that's waiting for us inside that first bite, and we realize, mm, man, I regret that. And for whatever reason, there's some privilege waiting for us that we lost. On some level, that's going to be true of all of us. But the text, the principle, isn't warning us, or isn't basically sticking our nose in it. The the text is saying, look forward now to the future by obedience today. It's interesting, as far back as the rivalry between Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, remember their rivalry and um, how they wanted preeminence and and love that that, that they struggled to have from Jacob? Genesis sort of carries a suspense all the way to the end of the book as to which tribe is going to have the birthright of Jacob and the blessing of Jacob. Ultimately, which line is going to carry the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And up to this point, we sort of think, you know what? It's, we know it's not going to be Reuben. We just saw him axed. Simeon and Levi, it's not him. We're going to think it's probably, we're probably going to think it's Joseph, aren't we? In fact, let's take a jump over Judah down to Joseph and look at Joseph, verse 22 and following. Verse 22, we read, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
from the God of your Father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, may they be upon the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Now that is what you might call a contrast to, the, to those that we just read. Incredible contrast. In fact, in these verses, we have five times the words blessing. Jacob uses the word blessing in reference to Joseph. Why was Joseph so blessed? Because even though, to use Jacob's own words, Joseph was shot at bitterly by the archers. They attacked him, but his bow remained firm. Those, his brothers, of course we know these are the archers referred to, sold him into slavery, and yet Jacob was faithful. He was tempted by Potiphar's wife, yet Jacob, uh, Joseph was faithful. Uh, Joseph was in prison waiting years for God, and yet Joseph was faithful. And as a result, God blessed him. The similarities between Joseph and Jesus are often brought out by commentators. And it, there are a lot of similarities. In fact, they're, they're pretty striking, for example. I mean, think about it, just the big picture. Joseph, like Jesus, came to his brothers, with came to his own, with the announcement that God had said he would rule over them. They rejected him. They gave him up for dead, thought he was dead, but behold, he's alive and rules the whole world. The similarities are striking, so much so that a lot of commentators try to call Joseph a type of Christ. I don't know, maybe he is, but the Bible never says that. The Bible only refers to types or those that represent Jesus on a few occasions, like Adam, like Melchizedek, even Isaac is called a type of Christ. And uh, trying to make types out of people like Joseph, even though it was the uh, the connection is very uh, striking. I mean, we kind of go, so what? It's there, but you go, well, so what? What what's the purpose of it? Anyway, that's uh, sort of irrelevant. But Jacob's blessing on Joseph teaches us a principle. In fact, it gives us our second principle, which is far more encouraging than the first, and it's this: blessings follow those who dig in and endure faithfully. Blessings follow those who dig in and endure faithfully. It's really easy to say that on the other side, on the end of it all. When it's all over and the blessings are in your lap, it is really hard to say that when you're in the midst of it. When you are struggling and every 10 feet there is an exit to God's faithfulness. When you are struggling. I think about often I think about Jesus in the wilderness and his temptation. It wasn't until 40 days of no food that the devil comes to him and tempts him to turn stones to bread. Could Jesus have turned stones to bread? Absolutely he could. He's God. He made the stones to begin with. He could have done it. Jesus was starving and could have fed himself. He could have yielded to that temptation. It wasn't a, an an issue of ability. It was an issue of faithfulness. And Jesus chose to be faithful. So, blessings follow those who dig in and endure faithfully. You may be in a place 
Or you may be soon in a place where the devil is tempting you to turn stones to bread. You may be in a place where there is an exit off of this hard and bumpy road that God has called you to to be in, to be on. Remember Joseph. Remember Joseph's whole life up to this point. Struggle, hardship, and yet he dug in and was faithful. As it says here in verse 24, his bow remained firm. His His arms were agile. How? From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father, the Almighty. God strengthened Joseph day by day by day, moment by moment. And that's what we've got to rely on as well. Every day. Don't pray, God, get me through the week. That's too much of a prayer. Pray, God, get me through the day or, God, get me through this moment that I may walk with you faithfully. Blessings follow for those who dig in and endure faithfully. Don't quit. Don't give up. When the archers bitterly attack you, don't give up. Don't quit that difficult marriage just because it's hard. Don't quit those prayers just because God's timing is different than yours. Don't quit thanking God just because your job is stressful or you're worried about your retirement or the stock market or whatever. Why? Because blessings follow those who dig in and endure faithfully. Not only that, if the first three sons lost their privilege because of their sin, we could skip all the sons because they all sinned. They all sold Joseph into slavery, except Benjamin. We could skip right over all of them and just plant the flag of the Abrahamic blessing right in Joseph's camp. And even though God would bless Joseph's tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, this is not the one through whom would come the Messiah. It would come through the fourth son, verse 8, Judah. Verse 8, look back at verse 8. Jacob's words are pregnant with meaning. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. So a whole lot of uh, metaphors going on there in Judah. But Judah is the one through whom the blessing of Abraham is going to pass. How interesting. Judah was far from perfect, wasn't he? We remember the Judah story throughout the Joseph story. In fact, we've got a whole chapter right after Joseph's faithfulness and, and or being sold into slavery in chapter 37. We've got a whole chapter, 38, of Judah in his unfaithfulness. And yet we're told here that now Judah is the one through whom God is going to send the Messiah. And we'll see that here in the details that follow. But it's not what we expect at all. Remember last time, last week, we looked in um, Genesis 48 
at when Joseph brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to be blessed, and Jacob crossed his arms. And it's like, wait a minute. Joseph says, no, 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 no. The firstborn should be blessed here. Joseph's expectations were that the firstborn would be the one that would be blessed. Nope, Jacob crossed his arms. Indicating also this is what God also often does in our lives. We bring our Manasseh to be blessed, and instead God crosses his arms and blesses the Ephraims. And this is the way God works. This is what he did here. We expect that Joseph would get it, but he doesn't. Judah gets it. God crosses his arms and blesses one unexpected, and yet one who, who in a very real way was a very good representation of Jesus and that Judah was willing to give up his life, wasn't he? He says, I'll stay. I'll be a slave. Let Benjamin go back. Judah, self-sacrificing for his brother. Well, his words are amazingly thick. Uh, uh, how, how did Dr. Toussaint used to say? Freighted with meaning. And when he'd say it, he'd shake his hand like freighted with meaning. They are freighted with meaning. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Your sons shall bow down to you. The, the implication here of Messiah is interesting. Uh, the Joseph's dreams, remember, said that he would rule over the family, but it never promised a permanent ruling. It's just, just going to happen at some point. And it did. It's happening right now in, in these chapters. But the, the long-term leadership is going to come from Judah. In fact, not just leadership over the brothers, but leadership with the big L, the leader is going to come from Judah. Um, verse 10, we're told, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And then prior to that, we've got all this mentioning of a lion. This is where we get the lion of Judah. The lion of Judah is this prophecy, ultimately, that is fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ, who is referred to as the lion of Judah in the book of Revelation. Now, if you would, keep your finger here in Genesis and turn to Ezekiel chapter 21. Ezekiel chapter 21. And let's look at something a little unusual there. We read in Genesis that the scepter is not going to depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh. When you hear of Shiloh, what do you think of? You probably think of the Civil War battle. You know, where was that? In southwestern Tennessee by Pittsburgh Landing. Anybody ever been to the Shiloh battlefield and seen it? I've never been there. I would love to see the Shiloh battle. I've been to a couple of battlefields in Tennessee, but uh, I've never been to Shiloh. You might also think of uh, the verse to a, that old Neil Diamond song. Remember that? Shiloh? Shiloh, you know my name. I love that song. But Shiloh originally meant, it's a Hebrew word that actually means, it's pronounced Shiloh. In fact, that's how the, the Jews today pronounce it. If you go to Shiloh in Israel, they, they refer to it as Shiloh. It literally means whose it is. And if you've got a new international version in your lap, I know you're in Ezekiel, but if you've got a new international version in your lap, Genesis 49.10 doesn't say Shiloh. It says, until he comes to whom it belongs. The new international version actually translates the Hebrew, doesn't just say Shiloh or Shiloh, but translates it into the one to whom it belongs, the it referring to the, uh, the promised scepter. So Ezekiel 21, look at verse 26. Ezekiel twenty one twenty six says this 
Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also will be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. And you may have in your Bible there capital he and capital him, and that's uh, exactly right. This is another reference to Shiloh, except here in my translation it, it refers to, to he to whom it belongs. The context here is that uh, the, the, the current king of uh, Judah wasn't toeing the line, and God's saying, take the turban off of this guy, and it's not, you know, the ultimate leader is coming and I'm going to give it to him who, to whom it belongs. This is a reference to Shiloh, Genesis 49, verse 10. So let's turn back there, Genesis 49. So sure are most theologians that Shiloh has messianic overtones that they'll capitalize the word until Shiloh comes. They'll make it a person. This is a person who is coming called Shiloh. And Jesus is our Shiloh. He came from the tribe of Judah. The Apostle John makes a direct tie to Jacob's prophecy by calling him the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation chapter 5. And when the Hebrews settled in the land and took the glory of God in the ark and actually placed it somewhere, do you remember where they placed it? Shiloh. Shiloh was the place that they placed it. It was the place uh, that sort of gave a, a, a premonition of the, the final Shiloh who was coming and that is Jesus. And it's a wonderful connection, again, if you think of the Gospel of John, that says that, remember in John 1, 14, where it says that we saw his glory and his glory dwelt among us? That word for dwelt is literally the word in Greek for tabernacle, that the glory of God, that Jesus, the glory and the glory of God tabernacled with us, which is a, a throwback to the tabernacle in the wilderness. So that tabernacle that was at Shiloh, that had the glory of God in it, the Apostle John says, Jesus tabernacled with us in the same way. So there's all these connections that are happening here in Genesis chapter 49. And if that wasn't enough, in verse 11 and 12, there's all this mention of wine. Wine, 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 wine. Washes his garments in wine. His eyes are dull from wine. There's uh, all this wine. Why? Why is there's so much wine being mentioned here? Whenever I think of this, I think about the time when I was up in New York at an airport and went to a Starbucks. And, you know, they always ask you, you know, what's your name? Because they put your name on a cup. And I said, name's Wayne. And they, I must have said more of a southern drawl, name's Wine. So they put wine on my cup. So I get my Starbucks cup back and it says wine on it. And I thought, you know, I better smell this before I drink it. So an abundance of wine is a premonition of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he's going to have abundant wine. Remember Jesus said at the Last Supper, uh, I really eagerly look forward to this Passover with you, but I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until, when? Until I drink it again in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not going to be this you know, drunken party. That's not what he means. But a time of celebration. And the wine represents this and the abundance of wine. In fact, Jesus' first miracle, it's very significant. Jesus' first miracle was what? Changing water to wine. And it wasn't just a little wine. It was a bunch of wine, and it was great wine. And Mary understood this. We know that because of Jesus' response to Mary. 
Mary says to Jesus, they're out of wine. Implication, be a great time to do what you're going to do and kind of get this whole kingdom thing started. And Jesus, we, we know that she meant that because Jesus' response was, my time has not yet come. And yet he did the miracle. So it wasn't that he was against turning the water to wine. It was He was against turning the water to wine to start the kingdom. But again, the reference here in, in these verses, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, is just freighted with messianic overtones, every single verse. Lion of Judah, the coming of Shiloh, the, the, that he's going to rule and that he's going to bring incredible blessing in his kingdom, represented by this abundance of wine. All of this, Jacob is le- saying as he's laying there dying, what incredible vision the Spirit of God gave him to each of these tribes and particularly to the tribe of Judah. Incredibly significant. Well, as I mentioned, we've only referred to the, the uh, significant tribes here, the, 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 the ones that give us some application. But uh, Joseph got the birthright, that is the double blessing, Ephraim and Manasseh. They're now elevated to the actual 12 tribes of Israel, uh, two of the, of the 12. And Judah got the blessing. So Joseph got the birthright, but Judah got the blessing through which the Abrahamic covenant is going to come to the world through the tribe of Judah. Interesting, after the nation of Israel divided, you remember, north and south, the north followed, ten tribes followed Ephraim, or Joseph's tribe. Southern was Judah. And all throughout Israel's history, you you see this happening. Judah and Ephraim locking horns. These are the two dominant tribes, the two big junkyard dogs that are constantly fighting to try to figure out who's going to have preeminence. There's always this wrestling match. If you'll notice that when you read through the Old Testament, it's always who's going to win? Is it Ephraim or Judah, even though from the very beginning we're told that Judah is the one through whom is going to come the Messiah? Well, we read verse 28, but let's read it once again now with this greater context. All these sons, the good, bad, and the ugly, represent feathers on the same arrow. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, each one, or every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. Appropriate to him. So one, one final lesson for our principle from our text today is this. Our obedience today determines our future blessings and responsibility. Our obedience today determines our future blessings and responsibility. That's another good thing to remember when you are on that bumpy highway tempted to exit, when you're tempted to turn stones to bread. Our obedience today determines our future blessings and responsibility. Remember Jesus said to, uh, in the parable of the talents that how they managed the talents that they were given, whether it was a lot, whether it was a little, that didn't matter. What mattered was how do you manage what you're given? How do you use what you're given now in this life? is going to determine your position in the next. Not your salvation. Let me quickly add that obedience has zero to do whether you go to heaven or hell. If that's what mattered, we would all be condemned because we've all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. So we're talking about a principle that is relevant for believers, for Christians. That is, our obedience today determines our future blessings. If you have accepted Christ 
If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, the payment that you deserved, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you, you're saved. You can't lose by your disobedience, by your works, what you gained by God's grace. You can't lose by works what you gained by grace any more than you could earn it by works. You can't lose it by works. But obedience does make a difference in our future blessings and responsibility. Interesting, in the middle of Jacob's blessings, we skipped over one little line, or actually a few, but there's one I want to highlight. Look at verse 18. In the Hebrew text, it's just three words. But Jacob says in verse 18, right after this uh, mention of Dan, he says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Just three words in the Hebrew text. But Jacob's little bitty prayer reveals the first time that he actually talks about waiting on the Lord in his whole life. He's never even used that word in Genesis before. Interesting, this verb actually appears in its intensive form here. And it doesn't just mean wait, it means eagerly wait. Sometimes it's even translated hope. For your salvation, I hope, O Lord. And it it can definitely mean that. And we don't want to make this walk on all fours, but it's very interesting that the root word of this word for your salvation comes from the word Yeshua. Yeshua. We know that as being reference to our Lord Jesus. This was Jesus' name, Yeshua. And it's related to this word for salvation. Uh, The man Judah would be the first of his tribe to offer his life And Jesus, of course, would be the one ultimately who would lay down his life for all of us. So, the principles for believers. Our obedience today determines our future blessings and responsibility. We see this also in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he says that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not for a heaven and hell issue. That's taken care of on the cross. The judgment seat of Christ is that where all of our works are judged in the same sense that like fire judges a house. Fire judges a house, it burns what's burnable, what's not burnable won't burn. In the same way that our works are going to be judged by Jesus, fire is not involved in that, it just means it's so thorough, it's like fire in a house. And what burns will burn up, but what doesn't, what can't burn is going to last, and that Jesus is going to reward us for. The things that we do with a motive that honor God can't burn up. They will last, and God will honor that, and God will reward us. Christ will honor, honor that in our lives. And every one of us has got something to look forward to. It's not like you, know, you can think, oh, well, when I stand there, the whole house is going to go up. I mean, I'll be lucky to step out of that thing before it torches. No, you can hide in the chimney. You've got a chimney somewhere in your life. You've got a chimney and for the glory of God. You've got a foundation that's not going to burn. There is probably going to be more than you, stuff you've forgotten. Stuff you've forgotten. And you know that because eventually or occasionally people come to you and say, you remember back in 1981 when you said such and so to me? That really encouraged. You totally forgot that you said it. But God hasn't forgotten it. And he won't. There is a whole list of surprises waiting for us when we get the glory at the judgment seat of Christ, things we had forgotten that Christ is going to commend us for. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So our obedience today, never underestimate 
the value of simple daily obedience. Even though it doesn't seem like a big deal now, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. For these brothers that forfeited blessings that could have been theirs, it was a big deal in the long run, and it'll be the same for us. One final challenge here at the end, look at verse 29 through 33. 29 through 33. These are the the last words of Jacob. He charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So this is where this is how our joke connects, if you haven't already made the connection. Don't want to be buried here, want to be buried there. There is this passion in the life of Jacob to be buried in Israel or to be buried in Canaan and not just anywhere but in the burial plot with Abraham and Isaac why because he believed in the promise that God made to Abraham the promise that God made to Abraham is that God would give him the land and many descendants and blessing and Jacob was expecting a resurrection and that's what this really is focusing on He says, put me there because I want to be resurrected there. I don't want to be resurrected in Egypt. I want to be resurrected there. Beautiful ending to a life that was touch and go, it seems so often. Jacob ended well. He ended well. Well, when we think about Genesis, we've still got one more chapter here to go. Next week we'll end this up with another very touching scene with Joseph and his brothers. But when we think about our lives, don't think about, before we get to that, when we think about Genesis, don't think about Genesis as a collection of stories. When we look at Genesis, we tend to chop it up, don't we? We've got the first 11 chapters, creation, fall, flood, nations, boom, done. Chapter 12, Abraham. It's like it's a brand new book. We've got the life of Abraham, then the life of Isaac, which is pretty small, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, this wonderful story that ends the book. Oh, Genesis is a great book. But wait a minute, how does all that fit together? And why in the world do we have all this emphasis on Joseph when Judah is really the one who's the focus, at least for the rest of the Bible? Because all of this isn't about these little bitty chapters. It's about the big picture. It's about the big picture. The life of Jacob really points back to the promise of Abraham. And the the life of uh, Joseph as wonderful as it was and all the great principles that it teaches us really is about how God preserved the line of Judah through whom ultimately would come Jesus who would die on the cross, rise again and reign forever fulfilling Abraham's covenant. So the, it's look at the chapters but look at the big story and don't make a judgment about the goodness of God based on the chapter that you're reading at the time. Now, same is true in your life and my life. We can look at our particular chapters and it can be bad news. I mean, it could be, you could be the moment of uh, Joseph in prison and think, Lord God, 
you promised that I would have X, Y, Z, and here I am rotting in this prison. This is what John the Baptist thought, too. Remember when he sent to Jesus and he said, Are you the Christ? Because uh, if you're not, we would need to look for somebody else. Why did John say that? Because John was in prison. There was no kingdom at all. We can have that same frustration. And John's answer to John the Baptist, I'm sorry, Jesus' answer to John the Baptist, God's reminder of us here in Genesis is the same thing. Don't just look at the chapter you're in now. Remember the big picture. Remember the big picture when you're struggling with daily obedience because in the end, it will be worth it. We have to believe it. We know it. We see it. It will be worth it. Our lives follow the same divine principle. We can be content to play a very small part, but a very significant part in God's story of history. And when we realize that God's using us to do a little bitty part that's very important, it doesn't mean that we're not important. It, it means God is that much more significant than we possibly could have imagined. It's all about Him and about His glory. And at the end of life, you know, when we're really longing for God to give us what we want to make our life fulfilling, there is nothing more fulfilling in life. In our best moments, we know this is true. There's nothing more fulfilling in life than to realize you're glorifying God. And when we get to the end of life, and we realize that we have done that, there's nothing more satisfying for all eternity. So, let's pray. Once again, God, we're amazed at the Scripture and how you put pound for pound into these verses so much relevancy that we see played out through the rest of Scripture and in history, and ultimately the history that's not even yet been fulfilled with Jesus, his second coming, to reign on earth in the kingdom of God. We look forward to that. Until that time, help us, Lord. Help us to dig in, to stay faithful on a daily basis when we are tempted to turn stones to bread, when we're tempted to exit off the highway. Give us that tenacity to stay faithful and to trust you and glorify you, knowing that one day it will all be worth it. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Y'all have a blessed Mother's Day, and we'll see you next week. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>